it doesn't really matter how much you earn right in 20 years what will matter is how consistently you invested right? <laughs> and, did make, and did not make any 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 big uh, you know investment mistakes anyone can become financially independent by the age of 40 45 Outside of work, there's there's one thing I wanted to talk about really quick. You work with a, a philanthropic organization, Nandi. In Sanskrit, it, it means new beginning. It's really beautiful. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so that organization is basically based on my sister-in-law, who's a special child. So mm -hmm. her name is Nandini. And uh, the organization's objective is to help, uh, you know, people uh, who from the weaker section of society with things like education, you know, mm -hmm. try to get them employment. Uh, and uh, also very specifically in the special needs category, we also run a few schools uh, where we identify students from, you know, uh, from areas around Rishikesh, uh, which is a holy town in India. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, they, they basically go and study in that school. The school's name is Jyoti School. Yeah, so the, those are the charters of the organization. Yeah. How do you find time to do all that and have your own business? Uh, I think most of the work there is actually done by my father-in-law. We just try and support him. Uh, uh, so, yeah, and he has a team uh, which, which does a good job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now, now going to your, a little bit to your work, you were at American Express, which when I think of American Express, I think of an American company, but you, you led the expansion into to India and Asia as well. And, could you uh, could you give me a little bit of an overview of that? You were there for eight years. What are some of the challenges with that? Well, American Express is a very established brand uh, across the world. Of course, in US, uh, it is a, at a very different level. In markets in Asia, which are uh, which have a very small uh, premium market, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge for brands like American Express, which essentially cater to uh, you know the premium section of the credit card market, is mm -hmm. to uh, you know to create a uh, ecosystem on the merchant side as well as on the card member side to mm -hmm. uh, to actually have us you know a network that works well so so that's what we try to do uh, in india coverage of american express card was a bit of a challenge and you know i was uh, essentially leading that function for the company mm -hmm. so it was challenging because uh, making sure that people find value in accepting the card uh, and yeah. uh, you know we had a huge team which used to go to merchants and tell them that you know they should be paying a premium for accepting American Express card simply because of the value that we bring. In certain industries, it works very well. In some industries, it doesn't uh, work that well. So you know, strategizing, finding ways to enter those industries and making sure the card members don't have a problem, you know, when they try to use that card, uh, it's a challenging proposition. But you know, that's what we try to do in the markets uh, in Asia. That's that's actually quite fascinating. You bring that up because I have personal experience with this. I've, I'm a big traveler. I've been to, to Europe several times, uh, over 10 times. My family is from Turkey. Both my parents are Turkish and I go around in places in Europe and I see they don't even take American Express cards because American Express, for our listeners who don't know, has the highest merchant fees out of any of the other card issuers. So it, it's kind of fascinating hearing from your perspective that it's it's something that you're you battled as well your time there no absolutely i, th I think it, it it was a major challenge for amex and uh, over a period of time they've come out with models that has addressed this challenge to a large extent 
and mm-hmm. i think things have improved in the last 10 15 years mm-hmm. and uh, you know the the good thing about american express is that they have been able to achieve this without compromising on their uh, you know the the quality of the base that they you know attract on the card member mm-hmm. side and uh, and i think american express in my view is the best organization for customer service i mean you can't you can't get it better than that in across industries not just in cards or banking uh, mm-hmm. across industries i think there are gold standard as far as customer servicing is concerned and that really differentiates them from the competition yeah that's interesting do you think that do you think that asia and and india are a little bit behind on, on the curve when it comes to cards compared to the us is there still a lot more opportunity out there i think india has uh, uh, has moved very fast in the last 4 5 years and the direction actually is a bit uh, away from the card industry right so with the advent of uh, upi in india and the fact that uh, you know increasingly products are being structured around the upi framework rather than a you know network visa mastercard amex framework uh it's is basically uh, is basically indicative of the fact that you know the while the opportunity was very large in front of uh, international networks they were not able to uh, adapt to the indian situation and uh, once npci came out with uh, upi i'm sure you know the statistics that uh, india is al- already you know among the top 2 i think or probably number 1 now in digital transactions so wow. so i think so i think uh, and it just happened in four years four five years right so i think the global networks had that opportunity but because uh, they believe that uh, they would they were not a, they, they were not in a position to monetize it and make it economically viable they didn't take the steps that were necessary to actually explore that opportunity right so so i think it was a missed opportunity for all three global networks <laughs> yeah they could so, have done something yeah so american express has been able to diversify much more than the other three major card issuers essentially yeah i you know i, I think i, I would include uh, american express in those networks that were not able to exploit the opportunity fully um, i think it was a local network and they also realized that the card based uh, uh, ecosystem has its limitations simply mm-hmm. because you know it is it is expensive right uh, on the mm-hmm. on the merchant side on the network side as well as even for the card member so things have moved away and the framework that is working very well in the market is a qr code based framework uh which could have happened on the card itself uh, mm-hmm. but uh, it is right now happening on the upi framework and that's why uh, we are seeing the growth that we are seeing yeah are are consumers in in india and asia willing to pay a $550 a year fee to own an american express card like in the us oh uh, that, that 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 is a question which has always existed i mean the the uh, the market at that uh, i mean that market does exist and people do pay a very hefty fee uh, and if you look at the centurion card fees in india probably they are higher than what they are in us also right yeah. but that market for fees is very very small and when you are you know you are competing with uh, very very uh, uh, capable local banks who are able mm-hmm. to provide more value on the card without giving a similar fee then it becomes a bit challenging right so yeah. so so american express did command a very significant fee for a very long time but they were not able to expand that market and i think uh, uh, and that uh, probably holds true for all international banks in india across across product lines right so mm-hmm. what we have seen over the last 20 years is that uh, the multinational banks uh, across across city bank uh, you know even standard chartered hsbc who used to rule the roost as far as 
you know, consumer banking in India was concerned, they simply have vanished from India. I mean, they hold yeah. Yeah. almost no share now. And local banks, uh, local private banks, basically, uh, you know, they, 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 they have taken share away from uh, international banks as well as publicly owned, you know, public uh, uh, owned banks, state owned banks in India. And, uh, you know, if, if you look at their stocks, they, their stocks have grown like 30, 40 times in the last 20 years, right? 40, yeah. 50 times in the last 20 years. So, yeah. That's so there's a there's a general trend of decentralization is what you're saying. And in my mind, that brings a very opportune moment for fintechs to come in and start even pushing those community banks out or partnering with the community banks and like a vast relationship. So what, what are your thoughts on that? So, so, you know, banking as a service on paper looks like a very attractive proposition. It seems to make a lot of sense, right? Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, it also requires a regulatory framework which is supportive of that right mm -hmm. so uh, so while uh, if you look at uh, regulators around the world they've not been very active uh, indian regulator has been active uh, but right now i think uh, regulators in india have uh, done things which uh, make it more difficult for bass to play out in the market in the short term in the short term Maybe mm -hmm. in the long term, it will uh, work out to everyone's, uh, you know, advantage. In the short term, it looks like, you know, uh, with some of the regulations which have come, it, it has become challenging for non-bank players to offer, uh, you know, uh, fintech products using banks' licenses uh, through a bass route. Uh, but in theory, it looks like a very attractive proposition, right? So yeah. so that, that, uh, that market uh, still, uh, you know, it does exist and I'm sure it will see some rapid growth in the years to come. Uh, we've seen that happen in payments to a certain extent. And I think in other industries also, we'll, in other parts of the, uh, you know, the banking industry, mm -hmm. we'll see some things play out, yeah. So in the, in the US, there's this there's this distinction, it's, it's two groups. You have banks that have a bank charter and you have like non-bank financial institutions that don't have bank charters yet. So is that a similar? Is that a similar framework in India? And how difficult is it to actually get a bank charter in India compared to the US? Uh, bank charter is quite challenging, uh, but uh, you know we have a framework here called non-banking uh, uh, NBFC framework, where getting licenses is relatively easier. Uh, uh, obviously from a, a regulatory oversight perspective, the regulator is trying to make it similar to banks now. But uh, they have created, they have had <clears throat> categories like, you know, deposit taking NBFCs, non-deposit taking NBFCs, and the requirements for uh, both of them are, are different. Then they've also created more categories to, uh, to for P2P lending and, mm -hmm. you know, microfinance and, uh, you know, factoring and everything else. So, so, uh, so you don't need to be a bank necessarily to, to play in financial services uh, through a regulated entity in India. But at the same time, you know, without having the ability to take deposits, your ability mm -hmm. to compete across segments also becomes uh, a bit, uh, you know, challenging. So, so that's where we are. We have more than 4,000, 5,000 NBFCs in India, which we call shadow banks or you know, similar to shadow banks in the US. Uh, out of them, only the top 100, 200 have any meaningful business, right? So, and uh, out of 4,500 or 5,000 odd uh, shadow banks, I would say 3,000 do no business, hardly any business. Yeah. So yes, so that framework is there. Uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think there, there are opportunities there. And right now, if you look at the markets, you know, NBFC seem to be gaining a lot of uh, momentum from a 
you know, market valuation perspective as well in the last one year. Your your company actually partners with an MBFC. Am I am I correct? In that's that? right. It's that's uh, right. our our FinCap, right? That's right. Is it? That's one of the bigger shadow banks in India, right? Oh, they 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 are not very big, but they are. I think uh, they are sizable. And uh, mm -hmm. the good thing about them is that they are uh, more tech enabled than most of the NBFCs. Mm -hmm. So yeah. so that it, that makes it easier to work with them. And they are working with a lot of fintechs like us. Yeah. Yeah. So was it just like relationships that caused you to to partner with with that shadow bank specifically, or what was the the process of of deciding on a shadow bank to to partner with for your EWA program. So I think it is mainly it was mainly relationship driven. Uh, uh, having known the uh, the uh, the management there uh, from my past life, and uh, and uh, obviously seeing their tech stack and uh, seeing their ability to uh, to to respond quickly to our mm -hmm. you know product innovations and our product needs. So those were some mm -hmm. of the criteria. So how important is the tech stack in financial services? We we talk about there's there's banks out there that still run on programming languages like COBOL. Um, so so how important is it to to have a very easy to use API and a functioning tech stack when you when you consider a partner? It is it is extremely uh, important. Uh, if you are working with a bank uh, and banks don't have and banks have this uh, concern around uh, you know. Security. security. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it, they can become uh, a bit difficult to work with in terms of not just uh, you know getting them to agree to partner with you, but also the implementation time which it takes, right? So, tech stack becomes very important. The good thing about India is that you know most of the tech stack is now uh, universal and accessible by everyone, right? So, yeah. simple things like KYC, you know, uh, things like uh, fund transfer. Uh, you know, uh, the, these are publicly, I mean, they are public APIs now, right? So you don't really, they are not very uh, specific to a particular bank, right? So a mm -hmm. lot of those activities can be done through those APIs, but 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 uh, when you when you work with the bank, you know, you do need to consume some of the APIs. So many banks don't have those APIs. Many mm -hmm. banks have, but they have so many, you know, conditions and uh, the, the enablement process for those banks is so long that, uh, you know, it becomes a bit challenging to work with them. Yeah, but banks obviously will always yeah. be the first choice. If you have to work with a partner, it always makes sense to work with a bank simply because, you know, banks have the best cost of fund. And, you know, the yes. product that you create, will create around uh, those banks will obviously will be the most competitive for the for the right segment. Right. So mm -hmm. uh, so so the, the in the ideal world, you will have, you know, one partnership that caters to each segment of the market. Right. Uh -huh. So you have you have shadow banks catering to you know a segment then you have a bank <clears throat> to the top segment but that that is the ideal world right even getting mm -hmm. one partner to work with them is, is big. <laughs> so as an entrepreneur how how have things changed in the last two years I, you probably got started up right around when when the cost of funds was was very low so the federal reserve was at like eight eight basis points effective the ecb was somewhere similar um, so, so how did having a very low cost of funds factor into to getting your business off the ground, and how is it the paradigm shifted a little bit now that you are in a much higher cost of funds environment, especially with EWA, which you're not really getting spread off of EWA, you're more getting fees off of it. That's right. So, uh, uh, interesting question. So, basically, uh, you know, 
I'm sure you have observed that in India, the personal loan market is really exploding despite the rise in uh, you know the interest rates in the market. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, you know personal loans uh, below a certain uh, amount. Uh, that amount in India, I say, in terms of dollars, it would be about uh, I think two hundred dollars. If you look mm-hmm. at the market for sub two hundred dollars, less than three three months tenure. Uh, loans that market has exploded almost six to ten times in the last three years, mm-hmm. right? So that market is seeing the strongest growth, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the ability to price in that market is, I mean, they they are willing to pay APRs up to, you know, thirty six percent, forty percent, right? Wow. Uh, so yeah. that market has not got impacted because of the interest rate hikes, but our model is very different, right? So our model is that we tell people that. You know, we will save you from that high cost, right? Uh-huh. Access. So, but our cost of funds have gone up. So our ability to to hold true to our promise of providing low cost access to short term funds has obviously got impacted, right? Mm-hmm. So, so then we have to look for other products which can subsidize uh, uh, subsidize that cost, create more uh, a, a wider variety of credit products. So that's what mm-hmm. we are trying to do. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so so yes, the rate, the rate hikes and consistent rate hikes and you know frequent rate hikes has has impacted uh, you know our ability to uh, hold true to our promise in the market, yeah, profitably. So are you are you early to this market? I mean, EW, you're the first EWA organization in India. In the US, no, there. No, we are not the first. I think there were a couple of EWA players who started along with us or just mm-hmm. before us. But yeah. yes, we are. I mean, we are the first few in the first one or two years. Yeah. This particular industry was explored by people in the past, about seven, eight years back. Uh, and unlike US, where uh, you know the employers uh, adopted it in a big way. Now I hear statistics like forty-five to fifty percent of the employees do have access to unwage access. Mm-hmm. I think uh, because of the cycle right now, that number in India is not that high. I mean, it's not even close to that number, right? Mm-hmm. We would be in uh, decimals, uh, in decimal. I mean, below one percent, right? So, so it, it's a different situation in India. But obviously, it will. Uh, the trend is clear. The demand for mm-hmm. uh, on-demand pay is there, mm-hmm. and at some stage, employers will have to make it a, a you know a default offering in their you know benefits program. Uh, but uh, but we are nowhere close to where US is right now. We are at least ten years behind. We may we must be from a market evolution perspective. We must be where US was in 2013, 14. Wow. Where companies like where companies like PayActive and you know uh-huh. uh, and uh, EarnIn and uh, I think a couple of others were just getting started. Yeah. yeah daily trade. Yeah. So I have a I have a really interesting technical question as well. It, obviously, when you when you run an EWA company, you have to at least find a way to understand how much money someone's earned uh, through their payroll. There, I'm not entirely aware of the the payroll processors in India or the the time card keepers in India or whatever it may be. So, has it been a challenge hooking into payroll APIs and and trying to pull that data? I, I would assume that's probably been one of your biggest challenges starting the company up. Uh, see, if you look at the payroll market in India, uh, the uh, they call it, I think, HCM providers, right? 
so it is very very fragmented there are a lot of hcm providers in india you know mm-hmm. i don't think anyone has more than uh, 1% share for example wow. right so, uh, so but but the complication is not there many of them do have apis because a lot of these are startups themselves right mm-hmm. the problem in india is that uh, attendance monitoring and attendance management is something which is done offline uh, mm-hmm. for most of the month and the attendance actually gets reconciled only towards the end of the month in the payroll systems <clears throat> right and the use of time and attendance uh, softwares uh, like us is not that high in the segment that <clears throat> where the demand for ewa is high you know the attendance monitoring systems are not very robust they are mostly manual uh, you know done off excel sheets or even paper in some places so that learning we have actually applied to our business and we've created a uh, you know we've created a, a product that we call uh, you know workforce management product right okay. which is mobile based which is mobile based and uh, most of these activities which were being done through excel sheets through phone calls whatsapp messages what we are trying to do is we are providing organization an option to actually get them through our mobile app right mm-hmm. where people can uh, not just mark their attendance not just uh, complete their tasks or you know use it as a communication tool but also get access to a host of benefits right which otherwise are not available to them simply because organization don't have a platform to deliver them from right that's so, probably been so a hard it, sell though right has yeah. that been a hard sell because it, it's tradition you're fighting tradition and that's been something that's been very difficult every single time someone's tried to do it that's right that's right yeah. so what so what you need to do and that's what we are uh, <clears throat> trying to do is you need to create a tool which gives very quick roi to organizations right so they need to believe that it will have very quick adoption from the workers and uh, it will uh, it will see uh, you know real improvements in the way people work because see if if you're trying to introduce a technology among a segment where adoption is you know doubtful then the the willingness to actually roll it out is also you know less because mm-hmm. people have this in back of their mind is that this project is going to be one very difficult to roll out two very complex to use and three you know people will uh, <clears throat> if people don't adopt it then you know i have to go back to what i was doing earlier and it's, mm-hmm. it's too, too too much of a disruption so i think the our unique differentiation and our unique point is that uh, you know we 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 ensure worker adoption because we are providing them three services which are in very yeah. high demand very high demand right they want access to their uh, earned wages as soon as they earn them right mm-hmm. they want to be covered through insurance products health insurance life insurance you know even small uh, and they want to get the reimbursements quickly right mm-hmm. uh, and we have some other benefits on the platform so our whole uh, proposition is that as far as the worker adoption is concerned that is that is going to be done simply because of the benefits we have included on our platform as far as the worker technology is concerned that is something that you know you have to evaluate and see that if, if you know if this platform actually helps you uh, manage your workers better and your managers uh, and your workers feel less frustration because they're using this tool versus where they are today and initial uh, you know our assessment is that we are holding true to our promise and people who have started using our tool they are finding it useful so which is and obviously we have a long way to go because yeah. it's a complex and platform that we have built <laughs> so do you does your ewa platform operate on the ach network yes yes so we don't call it ach in india we 
so so uh, rbi has a couple of products like uh, imps upi neft rtgs through which there's real time settlement so as soon as people you know demand it it goes through this imps takes i think couple of seconds upi yeah. also takes a couple of seconds neft can take up to 2 hours uh yeah but it's all real time yeah so india is so far ahead of the us when it comes to real time payments that's right very far that, i mean that's a not huge opportunity US. yeah yeah not just us i think uh, probably far ahead of anyone else in the world as far as real time payments is concerned so so i guess what what is the opportunity there then i mean can you can you process us payments on a on the indian network and bypass the not really not really so uh, i think uh, uh, foreign uh, foreign uh, or remittances is still a it's still not fully solved in india both from outside as well as from uh, india to outside right so there there's some bit of uh, you know activity startup activity there uh, i think i think the the big chunks of the problems have been solved but taking those chunks and solving industry specific issues or you know use case uh, based issues those those opportunities still exist i think in india credit is a big opportunity across credit. across yeah. segments across segments right uh, we've seen some real work happening in uh, you know uh, financing of student loans for example even today it's not very easy for people to get student loans in india right so yeah. if you are going to us now it costs you anywhere between 300 to 400000 right mm-hmm. and a lot of people are able to afford it a lot of people not able to afford it we've seen a lot of startup activity there now um, uh, we even local colleges now you know a good colleges the fees now is 50 60000 uh, and which needs to be which needs to be financed right so so that that is one space where banks have not done a lot of work and uh, they they've left it untouched i would say to a large extent so that has created opportunity for fintechs uh, foreign uh, uh, you know for foreign exchange payments both from acceptance side as well as remittance side still an opportunity uh, but but i think the big opportunities are in uh, sme lending right so okay. small business lending uh, small business uh, automation small business uh, you know the whole business process automation so all those opportunities still exist to a large extent yeah. I mean, it seems like you're really well positioned to do to work in that small business lending space as well, because you're already going out and establishing relationships with small businesses. That's what the yeah. entire premise of of my FinFi is. You you go out and you say, hey, we will allow your employees to get access to their wages early. You do some due diligence. You get the system in place, and you have a relationship with this small business. So, is there also the opportunity to go in and and lend money to a small business when they need it as well, using your partner? no absolutely that that is one opportunity that we have already seen in the market i mean some of the players that we work with some of our clients do ask us whether we would be able to do uh, you know invoice based financing or you know uh, similar sort of financing but which is see the problem with in a in a startup is that at least for the first 2 3 years you have to be extremely focused right uh-huh. and your core product has to get to a point where you know it's so good it's so good that uh, you know no one can actually uh, blind side you you know uh-huh. one year one year down the line so so that is the big challenge that we have that how do we keep our focus time keep on improving that core offering and then obviously add on other stuff around it 
so the approach has been that you know if the demand does come for uh, products which are which we call adjacent products then we simply try to serve them through our partnerships <clears throat> so we'll typically pass these leads to some of our partners in the uh, you know in the network and you know if they if they get some if we get some revenue as a revenue share that's great yeah that's that's the approach we've not built it right now because there are too many products that can potentially be offered to these people but yes. trying to do everything at once just i, I mean it's going to it's going to compromise our core offering yeah so so what needs to happen with the core offering before you're you're comfortable branching out to other spaces and, and getting more bank partners that specialize in let's say payroll finance or small business loans based on cash flow or or whatever it may be what is that point where you are you make the decision you're like it's time to expand and, and fork off a little bit more i i think we first have to establish that the interplay between our benefits platform and our uh, you know, work management platform is actually feeding into each other, right? So uh, I, I think once we have established that with a few organizations, we are able to uh, <clears throat> establish that, uh, you know, workers' productivity actually increases through this, uh, you know, through this interaction uh, happening on the same platform, then I think we are we will be comfortable doing other stuff because that is a core offering, right? When we go to yeah. a when we go to an organization, we promise them that, you know, the way you work or your workers work is going to improve significantly because of the benefits that you're doing and the, because of the technology that you're giving them to do their work, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, so we'll, we'll have to have some evidence through, you know, six, nine, 12 months of study, which says that, you know, productivity went up, uh, you know, attrition went down and uh, generally workers are more happy. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, the organization is, uh, is gaining right so so yeah so that that, that is our immediate goal in it, the next it seems like that's already happening you already have 500,000 users in a very short time span which is incredibly impressive yeah so so i think you know that 500,000 uh, number is uh, is good uh, and you know many of those organizations are in the process of being uh, rolled out but I think getting people on the platform is easy. Getting them to stay on the platform and seeing a long-term benefit is more difficult, right? Yeah. So, um, so that is what we have to prove. We have to prove that people are comfortable uh, using our platform. People actually do derive the results that we have promised them. <clears throat> and that's what we have to do for the next you know, nine to 12 <clears throat> months. And at the same time, create a very strong uh, economic model, right? So right now we, we, we have a model which is unit economics positive. Uh, but a lot of things that we'll have to do in, from a product development side to really make this work very effectively, still, you know, it requires a lot of effort. So, uh, and investments in tech teams and everything like that. So we'll have to see. I mean, I, I won't say we are in a situation where we are out of the woods. Uh, we have a lot of work ahead of us, yeah. <laughs> even in our core offering. Even in our core offering. <laughs> but but obviously, rising rates leads to to worse unit eco economics as well for for your product though and how how are you plan to combat that if rates continue to go higher see rates uh, impact uh, us in a couple of ways right one is obviously you know the till the rates keep rising the general impression is that the you know the funding market will not come back right so mm -hmm. not enough capital will be available for high risk assets which basically a startup is right so, so, so that is worrisome because to really make a world-class company, you need to have substantial funding, right? You need to be covered for the next 24, 36 months so that you can 
plan your products, your product rollouts. You know, you can uh, identify segments and you know go deep into them and so and so forth. Second way it affects us is obviously, as I shared earlier, you know, our ability to create uh, you know credit products which are not predatory, right, and which actually are available at considerable discount to the market. So that obviously affects us um, uh, in a in a very serious way. And third is the general state of the economy, right? So, you know, our pitch basically is around employee welfare ultimately, right? So while we do talk about increasing productivity, which is useful to the organization, but employee product, employee welfare also plays a very important role uh, in our uh, value story. And uh, in times of a sluggish economy or uh, an economy where the job market is not uh, tight, right yeah which is the situation right now uh, then uh, you know organizations willingness to invest time and effort in such solution also goes down right so the overall demand from the organization not from the worker side workers want this product even more right now because mm-hmm. the inflation has gone up and you know they need money they're running out of money even faster right now right but uh, the employer's willingness to make effort and give time and you know, energy to this particular activity that goes down so overall there are three factors which are impacting us negatively right now right mm-hmm. investment climate is bad so availability of capital is not there you know uh, the cost of fund is high so we, you know our promise of giving uh, credit products at very low rates is, is difficult to execute and finally you know the employer uh, demand for the product itself is affected because you know they don't they don't see an immediate need because there are too many employees available right now at uh, you know reasonable price so yeah, it has, it has, it has an impact. It's interesting to dive into this a little bit more because in a way, inflation and or a recession could be a, a very good thing for your business as well because it's going to increase the demand of people who need access to money fast. And yeah. EWA may be the only way that they can get that. No, that's right. And that's what I'm saying. The end, end consumer demand is very high, but he's not the buyer of a product, right? The buyer of a product, he's a user of a product. The buyer of a product are HR departments, yes. management of the organization, right? So, so they they have to, they if they believe that this is going to give them what they need, right? Then uh, uh, then it helps us. If they believe that they have to focus on more uh, pressing issues, right? Uh, then um, then it probably impacts us adversely, right? So it also depends on how long that situation goes on, you know. Uh, if the inflation persists, for example, right, then some of the issues that uh, around a tight uh, labor market and stuff like that, again, starts impacting uh, organizations' ability to hold on to their employees, right? So then again, uh, even in a high inflation environment, high rate envi- environment, you still have high demand from the employer. So, so I mean, very difficult to predict how this will pay, play out. But yes, from a end user demand perspective, high rates, high inflation is is only increasing the demand from them because they are running out of the money very quickly. Yeah. What's the inflation situation been like in India? In the US, it's been fairly bad, but there's other countries that have it a lot worse. Yeah, I mean, uh, I never imagined that uh, the inflation in US will be higher than the inflation in India during my lifetime. But that has been a, that has been the situation. It was the situation. Now I think the US mm-hmm. inflation has come down. Uh, significantly, but uh, uh, that was a situation over a few months. Indian inflation is so it, the 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 uh, the Reserve Bank of India has a target inflation of four percent in India, 
right? Uh, but they are comfortable even with 5%, right? Oh. And, and uh, right now it is hovering around that number. <clears throat> so, so, uh, so I think uh, they are they are fine with that as of now. But obviously, if, yeah. if inflation in US persists, or you know, there's a, sh- uh, a crude oil shock, which may ha- happen because of the situation which has suddenly developed in Middle East, uh, you know, it might spike to six six and a half percent, and then mm-hmm. the Reserve Bank will not have any option but to go on a you know a rate hike uh, or yeah. to continue with the rate hike, which has they have paused for a few months. Yeah, I just have to apologize a little bit too on behalf of. Of America, we're we're the world reserve currency, and we decided two presidents in a row that it was appropriate to print trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. So I don't know. I think we we brought some of this inflation upon the world ourselves. No, actually, you know, uh, if you look at it, uh, <clears throat> some of those things have actually been beneficial to India. We saw a lot of venture funding in India in 2021 simply because there was so much money printed by the Fed, right? And uh, ultimately, even after these hikes, uh, at some at some point, they will pause. And even, even if they don't pause, the uh, thing about money is that money has to be allocated based on where they see the maximum uh, potential mm-hmm. for return, right? And uh, increasingly, people believe that uh, the Indian economy uh, has the highest potential for uh, yeah. returns as far as stock markets are concerned, right? So, so I was I was uh, uh, I was reading a theory somewhere that uh, once an economy reaches three and a half billion dollars, uh, three and a half trillion dollars then uh, as it doubles the economy in the next year the market cap actually goes up by 10 times and it had some statistics from us so if that happens in india then you know the india is going to be the market <laughs> to invest in so some of those things might actually help india let's see how that goes that's honestly quite fascinating i've, I've heard a lot of, of rumblings in the us there's there's a lot of asset managers out there that say you know buy in india etfs buy india etfs but it's it's kind of fascinating to hear it from you as well. Uh, just so much opportunity. India has a huge population, and I think that in a way it's going the way of the U.S., where it's becoming a more work-focused country. Um, but at the same time, like we we touched on a little bit, there's a lot of people from India that are coming to the U.S. to study, and some of them stay in the U.S., but some of them also come back. And it's a problem that other countries have 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 had, where there are people. Who are highly educated that that actually end up leaving the country yeah so i think you know brain drain drain as they call called it in india earlier was perceived to be a problem in 80s even in 90s but now there's so many people in india right <laughs> i mean there's there's so many people who are getting good education in india right now and uh, uh, i think and a lot of people even after studying in us actually come back to India, which never happened in the 80s and 90s, right? So 95% of people who went abroad always stayed abroad, right? They pursued their career in the US and all. And now we see a very high percentage of people actually coming back because they find better opportunities back home, right? <clears throat> so I don't think it is generally perceived to be a problem anymore that people are going abroad for higher studies, right? And, and as I said at the beginning of the discussion, that uh, Indian uh, ability to provide quality higher education to is, is the capacity seems to be an issue right now. So people don't have an option to go abroad, but to go abroad, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think that problem more or less has disappeared. The brain drain, you know, was a result of more attractive opportunities being available outside. Uh, mm-hmm. I think now people, it, just the opposite will happen. People perceive that opportunities in India over the next 20, 20, 30 years are going to be better. 
so so yeah so i think now now the question is that are indians taking too much from you know the universities in us and then coming back to india to actually use that knowledge but <laughs> till they are till they are paying the high fees that they are charged in us i think us is also happy yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think it's ridiculous. I, I mean, I don't know how people pay for it. It's like sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars per year in some cases. I just don't. I just don't see how the economics of that work out. Even though U.S. software engineers and U.S. finance are some of the highest paid in the world. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I, it's it's extremely expensive, and uh, I, I I I I find it difficult how people will ever. Uh, generate a ROI, <laughs> meaningful ROI on that education, specific, especially because uh, in India you can get the same education, but probably, I mean, you can argue that the exposure is much more if you go abroad. But if you are among the top students and you can get through a very good Indian university, I would see little reason for anyone to go abroad. But uh, as I said earlier, there are so few colleges, there are so few seats which are available mm -hmm. in India, that, and there are so many talented people that they don't have an uh, option but to go abroad and you know spend that type of money. Simply because they are not enough, uh, uh, you know, uh, educate uh, enough uh, higher education colleges in India of quality. Yeah, yeah and I, I don't, I don't know how people pay for it either because you touched on, you touched on a little, little bit. There's not really many student lenders in India, and you can't really get a student loan in the U.S. because you need a social security number. So it's how do people pay for it in that sense? I think Indians' willingness to pay for their kids' education. Is uh, is is very high, right? So they would uh, they would uh, sell their houses if they have to probably. I mean, I'm wow. maybe exaggerating here, but they would they will give away their a significant part of their savings to to get their kids to educate uh, to get a good education, you know, in a good college, whether in India or abroad. So so I think that's how it happens, uh, and people do save for it. I mean, people do plan for it. Now they you know by by the time the kid is in fifth mm -hmm. or sixth standard, they are aware that. You know, this he has to go abroad to study, so they they plan for it. And even even if they are not able to achieve those goals, they, you know, they they break their retirement savings. They, in some cases, you know, I've heard. I mean, not too many cases, but I've seen people sell their houses and you know move to a smaller house, for example, so that they can pay for their kids' education. So people take it very seriously. People take education in India very very seriously. That's so honorable. I don't. I. I would never hear of someone in the U.S. doing that. I mean, it's yeah. it's kind of the opposite in the U.S. There's a lot of parents out there that says, "Hey, you're on your own, and you have to pay the the fifty thousand dollars a year on your own," and that's that's kind of scary. But but no, incredibly honorable, and it makes me have so much respect for for your culture too. Thank you. <laughs> so. We're about 43 minutes in, and I do this with every single guest that we bring on. Our main audience is college students. So people usually between the ages of 17 and maybe 25. And we, we dove into a lot of things that were semi-complex. There's a lot of moving parts, but um, let's do one takeaway for the audience. So if there's one actionable step that someone who's a college student can take today, that would put them in a very good position to do well in their career, their relationships, their health. What would your one piece of advice be to our listeners today? I think I think uh, you know I always tell people that consistent effort, right, uh, uh, has a very huge compounding effect over a period of time, right. So whether it is uh, in your studies, whether it is in your work, in your office, or whether it is in your investments, right. Uh, 
<clears throat> you have to put consistent effort and it means doing it every day right a lot of people students have this tendency that uh, you know i'm going to do it closer to the assessment time or you know towards the end of the period or whatever right so i, I would advise if you are studying in a college make sure that you are making the same effort every day and uh, it's consistent if you have two hours if you want to get two hours to studies every day just study for two hours but study every day right and similarly when you start your work uh, you know uh, same thing applies right you have to be consistent you have to keep working you have to show up a lot of these lot of things in life are achieved not because you know of being a genius or because you know you suddenly uh, came across opportunities it just happened because you know you showed up every day and people tend to underestimate the impact it has on you know careers on lives uh, and uh, uh, i i think the big differentiator between people who do want to achieve big things and people who don't is basically the fact that they make consistent efforts and that works very well in investments as well right uh, and yeah. i give this advice to everyone i meet you know it doesn't really matter how much you earn right in 20 years what will matter is how consistently you invested right? <laughs> did, not make, did not make any 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 big uh, you know investment mistakes anyone can become financially independent by the age of 40 45 right mm -hmm. uh, if you hold on to a decent job and uh, if you save consistently uh, and if you don't do any stupid investments at the college right so so those are the three advice be be cons consistent in your work in your studies in your savings investments and you know mm -hmm. life will sort itself out you don't need to do anything uh, out of the ordinary yeah so what i heard is invest in gamestop right no I'm just kidding no investment advice allowed here. Don't invest in yeah, it, stuff. it oh. might it might work out once or twice, but not <laughs> uh, well. Thank you so much for being on today, Pranav. It was an amazing discussion. Uh, super great perspectives on everything, uh, and new perspectives too. I think a lot of people in the U.S. are siloed off to the rest of the world. Um, so thank you so much for being on today. Also, thank you to Dr. Dalkalich and Dr. Monaco for for advising us through this process and just being our, you know our, our great support network. Uh, and thank you to the IU Media School as well for using allowing us to use their spaces.